Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Merry New Year! 
did we spoil movies tonight on the show? We're ringing in the new year with Eddie and Dan as they take on the markets in John Landis's 1983 film Trading Places. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the sort who picks both the cracked crab and the lobster, then you're ready to try your luck at The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, let's hop on the New Year's party train with Games Master Stephen Smart and find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was Laws of Attraction from 2004, directed by Peter Howitt and starring Piers Brosnan, Julianne Moore and Michael Sheen. Congrats to this week's winner at Cotton Science who guessed it on Image 5. You are the first to enter the 2017 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks, guys, and see you later. And we've got a Blotspot friend of the show. Ben Lott has written in with his rebound on Black Christmas. When horror leans more toward thriller, it actually works for me, despite my typical horror aversion. Black Christmas used some amazing techniques years before they became popular to create tension and to confuse the audience. I loved how they built a mystery about the killer's identity and also found it fascinating that it took quite a while before we even knew which of the girls would be the protagonist. It's not my favorite style of movie, but I enjoyed it much more than I ever expected. Your rank 233, my rank 101. Look at that. 101. higher than us. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Nick Langdon, friend of the show from Down Under, wrote in and, and uh, you know what? I have to, I, I have to read this because... Because uh, I, I feel like we're standing up for uh, against a great injustice. Here, <laughs> here, here, here! I know we all have our own opinions on movies, but I want to thank you and Andy for standing up for Rogue One in the latest film board. As you probably saw with my big rant, I was really keen on that movie, and it was the first ever I saw in Atmos, a new thing here in Australia. Looking forward to more time with TNR in 2017, and interestingly, three out of the last five films I saw have featured Andy Garcia. He was in Godfather Part 3, which I checked out to keep up with your series. Then randomly, I decided to catch up on Ocean's Eleven, and then Ridley Scott's oh-so-1980s neo-noir Black Rain. Oh, yes. <laughs> and a happy, happy holidays uh, from uh, Nick Langdon in Australia. Thank you so much, Nick. And you know what? Andy's been giving me trouble about not being... Uh, a strong enough supporter about Rogue One. I, I think that he's doing me a disservice by calling me someone who does <laughs> short shrift to that movie. I really enjoyed it, and I still need to see it again, so that's my problem. Well, I will say, as the one person who gave it five stars on the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. You win this round, Nelson. Although then again, I will say Nick Langdon uh, it was not a fan of Force Awakens yet. I, that's another one I'm a huge fan of. So what can I say? I just I once I let the little the little uh, kid out the of ch- out of my uh, heart that I had locked up for so long. <laughs> no, it's out. And I just can't go back. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. Andy, I want to go first because I have the aging trailer on the board today. Uh, I can't believe I hadn't seen it. I didn't see it. Didn't play during Rogue One. It probably should have. I don't know what's going on with that. This is, of course, War for the Planet of the Apes. Andy Serkis returns to probably not win an Oscar because he's doing motion capture. Uh, I, the, you know, the last Apes film ended up at number 12 on our list. 
uh, which is a really solid showing given the crap that we've talked about on that show. This one looks like uh, they're just amping it up. It's more uh, computer-generated things fighting computer-generated things. This time around, I'm I'm. It looks like what could be a really interesting apes film. The problem with it is that they do that thing I hate so so much, where they use essentially the title of the film as a line in the movie and they put it in the trailer. Uh, it, this happened with the Will Smith movie that's out right now. Now, War for the Planet of the Apes, it's not quite the line. It may, in fact, be more stupid. He says, if we <laughs> lose this fight, we might be living in a planet of apes. <laughs> Can't. How do you take that seriously? <laughs> How do you take it seriously? We see Woody Harrelson shaving his head uh, diabolically. Uh, he's good for this kind of a part. Uh, directed by Matt Reeves. Uh, Matt Reeves has done some uh, some good stuff. Uh, he's also done Under Siege uh, 2. He wrote Under Siege 2. Um, hey, I, that was I, a great I, one. I loved that one. Did you really? That was yeah. Surprisingly, that was the one on the train. It was actually a really good movie. It was like surprisingly good sequel. Don't right, diss that. Well, I, I have to. <laughs> I want to do I an can't... Under Siege series now, just so we can talk about that. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Uh, he's he's directed. Uh, he obviously directed Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So this is you know this is him coming back to it, uh, and uh, he also is behind Let Me In and Cloverfield. I uh, we were we were fans of Cloverfield. So um, it, I I think this could be a really fun uh, movie, and I'm excited to see it. How did it hit you? Oh yeah, I mean I really enjoy the 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 whole apes saga, um, both the originals and this new, uh, this new face that we have with them have a great time watching them. The trailer just looks really, uh, really interesting. I like where they're going with it. And, um, I mean, just, I'm unduly impressed with the, uh, all of the work they do with the, the motion capture and, uh, all these different actors just really bringing a lot to what they're doing as these creatures. And if you see the footage, of Andy Serkis and his troop uh, kind of acting as the apes on the horses and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's really stunning how much these these guys are really acting the parts, you know? I mean, they're really into it. And then to see, you know, what the effects team does to kind of create these creatures. I mean, it's 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 truly a remarkable bit of work. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just love the whole franchise and I'm very excited to see what they do here. War of the Planet of the Apes uh, opens big, big, big open July 12th, 2017 in Belgium. This first uh, release date we've got. It rolls out over that second, third week of July uh, all the way to July 14th <laughs> in the U.S. And uh, uh, Germany and France don't get it until August uh, 3rd and August 9th, respectively. So, uh, But it's, it looks like a big uh, worldwide uh, release uh, the middle of July. Get ready. Excellent. Well, in the uh, in this trailer conversation about uh, prequel, sequel, you know, <laughs> remakes, uh, redos, I am talking about uh, Alien Covenant, the other new uh, entry of a series that has uh, been dipped back into, and uh, another little taste on the whole story. And this is, of course, the uh, sequel to Prometheus uh, and uh, prequel to the Alien franchise, and uh, Ridley Scott is again behind it. This is the story of the crew of the colony ship Covenant when they discover what they think is an uncharted paradise, but it is actually a dark, dangerous world whose sole inhabitant is the synthetic David, survivor of the doomed Prometheus expedition. 
Sounds really interesting. The trailer has a great vibe to it. I really like kind of the horror, uh, you know, scare vibe. A lot of interesting sci-fi stuff, the little creepy spores floating through the air. A lot of really interesting stuff going on. Of course, Michael Fassbender returns as David and uh, very much looking forward to seeing him reprise that role. And then you have Catherine Waterston, James Franco. Uh, Numi is back. Numi Rapace is back as uh, Elizabeth. I'm curious to see how that's going to play out. And Guy Pierce, I'm guessing it's all just kind of uh, footage of them uh, in the past or something like that. And yeah. of course, we also have like Danny McBride, Billy Crudup, Demian Bashir. It's going to be a really interesting cast, um, uh, kind of telling another story, the next in the development of the uh, the xenomorphs and watching as the alien that we see at the end of Prometheus, which kind of looked like an early version of the alien, watch as perhaps it starts shifting and morphing into what we've come to know in the uh, original 1979 Ridley Scott film. I'm quite excited about it, but I'm also really hesitant because while I liked Prometheus, I also had issues with Prometheus. And uh, knowing it has some of the, the same team behind it uh, makes me a little hesitant, but I'm hopeful. I guess that's where I'm going to leave it, where I'm hopeful that really Scott is able to do something really interesting with it. So what do you think? You know, I, I'm excited about it, but in the same way that you lock your, you know, your inner child away. Uh, in your inner inner heart box, I, I I want to be much more excited about it than I am. Uh, watching the trailer, I I got this sense that I've I've seen this before, and the stuff in here that I've seen before is the stuff that led me to things I didn't like so much about Prometheus. Now I absolutely need to see Prometheus again uh, in order to get my my head back around what Covenant, the trailer for Covenant. Uh, brings me because I I feel like I'm all of my memories are frustrations and and I know that there was much more to that movie uh, than than I remember um, so I the thing that gives me most promise uh, as you say is you know the watching the creature uh, evolve and I love the poster art, artwork that has been released around this film the run poster uh is terrific and it is a uh, it, it is the alien it's starting to turn into the alien that i that i remember and i want to see more of of that um so i'm you know i, I i'm as excited as i probably should be going into a movie like this <laughs> that's fair that's fair uh, well, this is going to really kind of hit big in May. Starts in France on May 17th, and then the 18th and 19th, it pretty much releases everywhere else, uh, hitting the USA finally on May 19th. So um, it'll be a, a big weekend for it. Nothing you have ever experienced will prepare you for the unbridled carnage you're about to experience. I had the most absurd nightmare. <laughs> I was poor and no one liked me. I know what you're thinking. You see Foggy and Beth? We can make it, baby! Me and you! Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy are trading places. Help! Help! Hey, I don't want your bag, man. Help! 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 I'll bet that that man could run our company as well as your young Woodthorpe. Are we talking about a wager, Randolph? Is there a problem, officers? Oh, Winthrop. I'm glad your parents are not alive to see this. What? What? No, what wait, now this is totally preposterous. I'm not a thief. We are commodities brokers, William. Commodities are agricultural products, like 
wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. Freeze, slimeball! Moi? Put that gun away at once, Winthorpe. You lost your mind? Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy. They're not just getting rich, they're getting even. Do you have any better ideas? Yeah, you know, it occurs to me that the best way you hurt rich people is by turning them into poor people. Dan Aykroyd. <coughs> Eddie Murphy. <coughs> Ralph Bellamy. We've got to get Wilson and clear up the cell. Donna Michi. Randolph, this isn't Monopoly money we're playing with. Denim Elliott. What a scumbag. And Jamie Lee Curtis. By the way, food and rent, not the only things around here that cost money. You sleep on the couch. Trading places, Andy. We're uh, dipping back into the well with John Landis, our third John Landis-directed uh, film, uh, with 1983's Trading Places, written by Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrod, uh, stars uh, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, along with the fantastic Denholm Elliott, who every time I look at, he's done more movies than I ever think he's done. Uh, and uh, obviously Ralph uh, Bellamy and Don Amici as the Duke brothers, the classic Duke brothers. Uh, this film tells the story of these wealthy millionaires who uh, decide to place a bet on whether or not they can change the lives of their snobby investor uh, firm uh, manager and a street hustler. And they do it in spades. And boy, do they ever pay! That should have been on the. That should have been on the poster. What'd you think? I assume it's been a while since the last time you watched Trading Places. You know, it had been a while, and my memory of it was, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. The comedy really worked well for me here. Um, I mean, there's definitely some bits that feel more dated than others, but I, you know, the the characters really just came to life, and I had so much fun with these characters. I really enjoyed all of them: the protagonists, the antagonists, all the bit players. Just had a blast with it, and I just found myself laughing so much when I watched this film, and I had a great time. What is it that What is it that struck you sideways about some of the humor? You know, I think it's just it's some of the way that it's the early '80s, just kind of the the way that they still talk about. You know, our, our you know he's a Negro and stuff like that. It's like yeah, some of that is a little rough. And, you know, I, I like the way they kind of play play that up a little bit as far as Eddie Murphy and his reactions, like when they're talking to him about <laughs> about the different commodities and like, and this is bacon. Sometimes you might have it on an, a, a bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. <laughs> and he does that, that fantastic look into the lens like, are these guys for real? <laughs> but I don't know. It's just, it's, but it's, you know, some of that element, I think, is a little dated, I guess, just the way that they deal with that and just some of the the epithets that people have for each other or the way they talk about each other. But, you know, on the whole, I think it works pretty well, I think. There are certainly some Eddie Murphyisms um, that, you know, that, that strike me as nods to some of his stand-up uh, that were, you know, the way he talked about homosexuality, the way he talked about race relations. I mean, there are things that that hit me early in the film as as a, a little bit you know harsh uh, that that didn't stand up as well I think to the test of time but what I thought was most fascinating about the film is how prescient it is by the time you get over the hump uh, 
of the film and you enjoy the comedy of it, when you when you get to the second half of the film and you watch the turn that is being played and you watch the way Landis portrays um, these characters taking on the market and the sensitivity that they have to business and what business has done to culture and what culture is doing to business, in 1983, uh, it, it feels like it deserves to be right up there with the big short, you know? I mean, it is as smart a movie about market manipulation um, as, you know, some of the movies that we're dealing with right now trying to tell this story to help uh, the mass market understand what is going on, um, you know, to their money. And I love that about this movie. I think it's—I it. I don't remember it as a movie uh, that was that intelligent— about what's going on in the mass market really surprised me. Yeah, and it fits in with the title too, trading places. Aside from the fact that they're, you know, trading places, it just ties into the commodities commodities market and the whole trade, yeah. you know, the stock market and everything. I know it was originally titled Black and White, originally written they were hoping to get Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, who had been a very popular duo at the time. And um you know, I think to that aspect, it definitely works well. You know, there's there's another element that that does kind of strike me a little funny, and I, I don't know how much I really should let it, um, but it's just something that does make me, it makes me think. Um, the fact that you've got, okay, you've got, really, it's a story about trading um, upper crust society person with uh, lower class street person. Um Yet they still felt that, okay, well, the upper class person has to be a white person and the lower class street person has to be a black person. And to that end, it's like, eh, you know, that do does feel like it's a little rough that that's how they choose to depict them. Uh, but it also feels just like something of the time. I just I think that it would get a lot more. Uh, grief if somebody wrote a script like this today. I think that, you know, people would imply that they're saying things by writing these two characters this way. Whereas at the time, I think it, it works. I didn't even know how to respond to that. I think it's crazy. I think that's, that is telling uh, as much of the story of race in this film as, uh, as any other element of, of the story, right? They, they have to do this because that's, particularly at the time, that's what the stereotype of wealth and the stereotype of poverty looked like. But I don't think that's pe that's something that you relate to any less today. That's the stereotype. And in fact, that's sub that that sort of transition, that transformation, uh, when we actually we see Eddie Murphy as the black man go from the street to great wealth and handle himself ultimately so well is part of the reward of the story, right? It's part of the lesson where we get to we get to um, you know we get to teach those who may believe that the only way to have wealth is to be white. We get to teach those people through film. You know what? It, it turns out color doesn't matter. It, it doesn't have to matter in in uh, success. Anybody can succeed, and we're do, we're going to lampoon this scenario to demonstrate it but anybody can concede can can succeed i think that's part of the 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 uh the fabric of the story no and i absolutely agree with that i think that is the crux of the story but it does end up like with modern eyes and maybe it's just you know the pc eyes or whatever however you want to take it but it's definitely something that can be looked at you know um, what would, so be, let me it, just ask you then, what would you, how would, you're making this movie today as a remake, and Landis comes to you and he says, um, Andy, uh, I need you to direct this, and you're, you're, we're going to pick you 
uh, out, out and you're going to direct this the remake of this film. I'm going to produce it. Uh, how how do you cast it? No, and that's what I was about to say. This could actually be a really interesting thing to kind of spin on its head in a in a modern remake where you actually just reverse the races and you have a really wealthy, well-to-do uh, uh, black character and a really poor street character who's who's white, and then you have these uh, rich people trade them and see what happens. It could be interesting to just really kind of continue to play with the 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 way that stereotypes evolve and just the way all of that sort of stuff evolves. I think it's much less optimistic uh, in in that right. And optimism is not the right word, but we in an in an era of Black Lives Matter, right, where we see in the media over and over that these issues have not gone away writ large. To subvert the the casting choice tells a dramatically different story. Uh, than than this one, and I think the less ripe for comedy. It's just not. It's it's not as funny. That's and that's entirely possible. I mean, it might be more of a, a you know a, a biting thing. I you know I, I'm not yeah. really sure, but I just think it's it's an interesting thing that when you get that involved, it does put a different burden on the story. Something I think is really interesting, and also I think telling about the times is that when this film was written. They really felt like, well, if we can't get Richard Pryor, it's not going to work. It was like he was, at the time, the only bankable African-American actor out there. And the Mm -hmm. studio was really kind of like, well, if you can't get him, it's not going to fly. And uh, luckily, Eddie Murphy had just done 48 Hours right before this, and... And John Landis, I think I can't remember if he'd you know heard about it or had seen seen an early cut or something. And he's just like, oh, let's get this guy. He's really funny, and um, and convinced the studio that it could work. And it seemed like they were pretty nervous, but it did happen. And you know, luckily, that was great. So you know, then they had another bankable African American actor at the time, which again speaks of the time. I think nowadays, at least, they would have a much broader um, pick of actors to choose from. What was Richard Pryor doing at the time uh, that that he couldn't get this one? He couldn't be a part of this film. Do you remember? Uh, what was he doing at the time? Let's see. The Toy came out in eighty two, and Superman, Superman 3, three came out in eighty three. So that's that's what he was busy with. <laughs> oh, the poor guy. Right. That's that doesn't necessarily uh, that doesn't bode well for some of his choices. But you know, he did end up coming back with uh, Brewster's Millions, uh, which is. A, another interesting, you know, story yes. in terms of, of, you know, Richard Pryor, John Candy now essentially doing the same thing. Right, right. Anyway, so there's Richard Pryor. Sorry for his uh, his poor choice here. Um, what do we learn from John Landis as director of this film? Uh, Do you notice anything new uh, after we've, we've already talked about uh, American Werewolf in London and his horror chops? We talked about Three Amigos and how much we liked him uh, as a director of comedy. What do you get from from here? He's taking on a, a much more um, culturally resonant story. Well, and it really lets us know that, uh, I mean, his comedy touches are really kind of where he's grounded. I mean, American Werewolf certainly had some touches, but that was a little bit darker. Uh, for the most part, you look at what Landis has done, and it's uh, very funny stuff. And, I mean, he, he you know, he's, he's admitted he's a huge fan of Laurel and Hardy, of Preston Sturges, of 
all of these different types of, of these old school stories and characters. And I mean, he, he would add a lot of Laurel and, tu- Laurel and Hardy touches in here, like the moment when Lewis is outside the window and he sees, he sees Billy Ray inside eating with everybody and they're all happy and it's stormy outside. And, and just as he kind of notices it all and everybody's happy, the rain just kicks in like right away out of the blue and starts and soaks him. Um, same thing with the bullet gag when he goes to <laughs> shoot himself and nothing happens and then he throws the gun off screen and you just hear it go off and like <laughs> you know those those silly little gags i mean he really enjoys all of that and even like the whole train party that we have here that was kind of inspired by the palm beach story a preston sturgis film so you know he's he's a filmmaker who knows the history of film and he pulls a lot from all of that stuff to build into here so it's fun to see what he does here and just kind of playing around with comedy and uh and i mean as somebody who acknowledges he knows nothing about money or finances um and the whole ending he says you know i still don't understand what they're actually doing um he he directs it really well and he's got you know he's got some helpful exposition to help the audience understand what's happening because otherwise i don't think many people would but i think he does it well and i think the comedy element um it it works I, you know the way he described it he says it doesn't matter if people end up understanding the whole commodities bit at the end as long as they understand the good guys are winning and the bad guys are losing and i think he pulls that off you know, I I couldn't. I don't know. I know I've already made the comparison to the Big Short, but but that exposition at the end. Um, I mean, you could just as easily have seen you know an actress uh, at the time sitting at a gambling table doing that kind of thing, or put put another one in a bubble bath with champagne and have them explain the market, like what's going on at that sequence. Uh, it was it was really clear and I think appropriate sort of um, you know over uh, commodities B roll, and I think it ended up working exceptionally well to ground the film outside of it kind of brings you back in it says okay you we've we've had this comedy about uh you know literally trading humans trading places now we're going to show you the trading places and you you have to understand that to see how somebody's going to win at the end of this movie i i thought that was so smart just really intelligent directing very tight also we get uh, the the uh, landis see you next wednesday um reference that he throws in here uh, see you next wednesday i can't even remember if we talked about this when we did an american no. werewolf in london um it's a gag that he throws into a lot of his films this was a um a film that he had um i think he was trying to make this or this was a, an original script that he'd written like early early in his career nothing ever happened with it um the title is referencing a line from 2001 a space odyssey um, that uh, that uh, Frank Poole says during his video conversation. It's the last line that he says uh, when he's talking to his parents. Um, but it's this kind of this story that he uh, wanted to do and nothing happened. And so he's thrown it in as a gag in just a whole bunch of his films. In American Werewolf in London, it's the name of the porn movie that's playing in the theater. Um, and here in Trading Places, you see a poster for See You Next Wednesday in Ophelia's apartment. And on this particular poster, it's directed by William Wyler and stars Laurence Olivier, Merle Oberon, and David Niven, um, the real team behind the 1939 version of Wuthering Heights, which is really funny. And the poster it has the quote in French, one of the best, one of the 10 best movies in the world. So it's just, it's very funny. And he loves throwing it in there. Uh, it never, nothing comes up in um, uh, 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 Three Amigos, unfortunately. So we kind of missed it there. But it's definitely something that he throws in all over the place. And other people have subsequently also started throwing it in there. So very funny. 
I didn't. He even threw it into uh, into the Michael Jackson videos that he did for uh, Thriller right. uh, and Black or White. That's funny. Shall we jump straight into first shot, last shot? Yeah, let's. All right. So uh, first shot, uh, we have the crew team, right? It opens on the, the crew team. The title cr- uh, title credits are running uh, over a montage of uh, shots that demonstrate haves and then have nots. And so the very first shot is a crew team rowing on uh, a river in what we learn is Philadelphia. And that kicks off this montage of, of wealth and grit. And then the last shot, we end with a, a beautiful helicopter shot over uh, somewhere in the Bahamas, I believe, or the Cayman Islands, um, as we have the uh, wonderful line, uh, looking good, Billy Ray, feeling good, Lewis. As we close on Eddie and his girl, we've got uh, uh, Dan and uh, Jamie together and uh, Denim Elliott, and everybody's on uh, the beach or on the boat. Wonderful time as uh, the aerial shot flies away and the credits roll. So uh, there you go. All right. So how do those work together for you, uh, Billy Ray? You know, Lewis, I think it's just a, a simply a a nice shot of uh, location that kind of ties things together. I mean, the opening shot definitely ties uh, the the haves and have nots together in the cold. Uh, winter of Philadelphia. It just feels very kind of cold and a lot of disparate uh, views of life. Whereas here at the ending, it's just, you know, everything's happy, go lucky, uh, everyone is together, and uh, and it's just they're all enjoying their uh, their happiness, warmth, and wealth. I think the only thing I would add on that to that last shot is they're enjoying their happiness, warmth, and wealth. Uh, is there's something about, uh, you know, ending on that helicopter shot, right? Where, um, you know, being high up over this kind of scene of wealth is very much a, and of, of the day, right? That's what it felt like, kind of lifestyles of the rich and famous. There was always the helicopter shot over the estate. And, um, and I, I think that's telling, to me at least, it just it's sort of reminiscent of the things that we culturally were appreciating at the time. Like this is what wealth looked like. It was a helicopter shot of a boat, and uh, and so I I like that because it in fact subverts the story we've just watched. Like now look who's wealthy. Like these guys who just won, they may have won and been the honorable sort of uh, you know winners in this thing. They. They were able to, uh, you know, turn the table on these wealthy guys who were using them for their own enjoyment. Uh, but ultimately, now they are the wealthy ones. And what are they going to do with that wealth? And I think that final shot kind of wraps all that up for me. Yeah, it's fun. It's just it's, it's, fun. it's nothing complicated. It's very simple kind of uh, beginning and end of a comedy story. You know, I think it works nicely. <laughs> I like how I like how I just said something really deep, and you said, "Yeah, it's fun." <laughs> it's fun with all that deepness that Pete's putting in there too. <laughs> fun and deep, fun and deep, fun, fun and kind of deep, but mostly fun. <laughs> it's simple, simple and not complex. Kind of deep, maybe. <laughs> Casting uh, is done by Bonnie Timmerman. Uh, Bonnie is behind Bull Durham and Midnight Run and Glengarry Glen Ross and Heat and Black Hawk Down and Black Hat. And we've talked about all those movies. Uh, the work of the good Bonnie Timmerman. We, it, we practically have a Bonnie Timmerman casting series. 
Oh, we pretty much do. Yes, indeed. <laughs> she's the one who landed. Uh, she landed uh, Dan Aykroyd uh, in this film. Uh, good old Dan Aykroyd as Louis Winthorpe the Third. Um, you know, he's just so good in this role. He's it just seems so fitting to play kind of this upper class uh, wasp. And he he was inspired by, I guess, when he was growing up, he had an upper crust neighbor who kind of acted this way, and he took inspiration from him and also just New England wasps that he had uh, seen. And I just think he does it so well. And of course, you know, he does it so well that he went on to basically do the same type of character in Ants uh, many years later. But um, gosh, I love I love seeing him play uh, Lewis at the beginning of the film. He's just so, um, you know, hoity-toity and he does it so well. And when he says lines like, you know, he was in my Harvard tie, my Harvard tie. Can you imagine <laughs> he went to Harvard? The way that he delivers it is just like so perfect. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's just so great in this role. And, uh, you know, I mean, he'd worked with um, Landis before on the Blues Brothers. And he's just the sort of guy, he gets that comedy, I think. I think so, too. But you know what's really special about his performance here is you can start to see hints of the driving Miss Daisy Dan Aykroyd, right? Because he is one of those actors where as he got older, as he kind of crested middle age, he got really good. And it wasn't just Dan Aykroyd, the guy from SNL, who's funny, but he's Dan Aykroyd, the guy who can really turn a performance. And uh, when when Dan Aykroyd is in the middle of the second act of this film, as he's living in squalor and showing up in, in the Santa suit and the instant rain and all that stuff, watching his life from as an outsider... I thought his performance was not just funny, but really strong and impactful and, and emotionally resonant. And I, I thought he was just great. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's more Go ahead, than just. Call him, call him simple again. Say it was yeah, a he's simple fun. and good comedic performance. He's fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I really like what he brings to it. And you're right. He, he has a lot of heart. And as kind of this, this rich guy who, I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, there's not much to like about him at the beginning of the film. But you really get to see how he ends up connecting with uh, with Ophelia and how he kind of takes that turn and shifts things. And and I really like that. And I think you mentioned uh, when he's in the Santa Claus suit. I mean, when he's really at his low, which is at that point. Yeah. I mean, he's just so good. And you do feel like there's kind of this broken man in there. And so, yeah, I think Dan Aykroyd actually brings a lot to this table that... Uh, that um, Definitely, um, I think, helps this film quite a bit. I wish Eddie Murphy would do more movies like this. You know, he said in an interview that this was the last time that he had real fun making a movie. After this, he said it's all just been work. Um, I don't know if I completely buy that. Um, I think that he's done a lot of things that I would argue are uh, are fun. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I guess it's just from his perspective. But regardless... Um, He's great. And I mean, we're doing this series. This is, we didn't even mention, but this is our Eddie Murphy series, like Eddie Murphy in the 80s. And this is why we're doing this, because this is this guy who just kind of like burst onto the scene. I mean, he'd been in Saturday Night Live. Like I mentioned earlier, he did 48 Hours, but man, he just explodes here. I mean, every scene he's in, he's just uh, 100% convincing. He's just committed. He, You just believe him. And he's just he brings an, a, an incredible energy to the film. Absolutely. He's fantastic. His, uh, it's hard to believe as smart as he is on screen and as funny as he is on screen, as memorable performance as he is, that as he delivers here, um, that he is, he's still the, you know, he, that he was only 21 
you know, when he hit this movie, that he was he he strikes a much more sort of mature um, performance. Uh, his name, Billy Ray Valentine's amalgam of two NBA players, uh, Portland Trailblazers, Billy Ray Bates and B- Daryl Valentine. Uh, I, you know, I, I know nothing of uh, basketball, so I don't know how uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, I will say Billy Ray Valentine is just one of the iconic screen names. Like it's just such a perfect name for this character. I think the best, the biggest thing that we owe uh, Eddie Murphy's performance here is not specifically his performance, but uh, we it it came we we have a rule we have a, a a trade rule that came out of this film. I did not know this. The Eddie Murphy rule uh, is is now a rule defined for the uh, within the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission, uh, where it bans the use of misappropriated government information to trade in the commodity markets. Uh, and and you know not to get too much into trading commodities trading, but here is uh, from the speech by uh, F or CFTC chief Gary Gensler. We have recommended banning using misappropriated government information to trade in the commodity markets in the movie Trading Places. Starring Eddie Murphy, the Duke brothers intended to profit from trades in frozen concentrated orange juice futures contracts using an illicitly obtained and not yet public Department of Agriculture orange crop report. Characters played by Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd intercept the misappropriated report and trade on it to profit and ruin the Duke brothers. In real life, using such misappropriated government information actually is not illegal under our statute. To protect our markets, we have recommended that we call the Eddie Murphy rule to ban insider trading using non-public information misappropriated from a government source. So this is testimony in front of Congress <laughs> that, that where they're, they're calling out this John Landis comedy film. Uh, I find that uh, enormously amusing. What I think is interesting is that it, you know, this movie came out in 83, but it wasn't until nearly 30 years later that they actually had this, uh, you know, go before Congress. And it's like, how did it take them this long to actually ban using misappropriated government information to make these trades? That's crazy to me that they talk about it in this movie, but it is still legal. And it still happened for almost 30 more years. For 30 years, how often do you think this movie was called out in those in those hallowed halls and halls and clubs uh, as inspiration for making a lot of money? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Man, we should totally do what Eddie Murphy did. <laughs> exactly. Oh, geez. So crazy. The Duke brothers are played by Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici. It was great to see them in this film together. But just really brilliant casting. I think that having this this two uh, you know upper crust uh, you know white guys, these two guys are just so perfect. Don Amici is just so just wicked as Mortimer Duke, um, and as the one who kind of instigates his brother uh, Randolph to kind of do this bet. Randolph is the one who constantly seems interested in science and all of these experiments and, and everything. And Don Amici as Mortimer is just convinced that it's, you know, it's the breeding and everything inspiring this this crazy $1 bet. And it's just, man, I mean, seeing these two guys as the antagonists in this film, um, really going after these, uh, you know, uh, Dan and and uh, Eddie, and turning their lives completely upside down in just the worst way. I mean, truly, I mean, this is, you know, like the game, right? I mean, that's exactly right. what they're doing here. 
and just kind of crushing these two people. I would I would love to have seen the version of this story where they reverse everything and say, oh, we were just kidding. We just wanted to test it and see what would happen. Uh, you're really welcomed back into the fold, Lewis. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, what is that version of the story? How does that play out? <laughs> Totally. Oh <laughs> these these guys were they were just so good. I in particular Don Amici. It was so nice to see him on the screen. And this film marked something of a turning point for him, right? I mean, he hadn't been he he was a a major star in the 30s and 40s and major radio personality and and radio host in the early days. And then he went dark for a long time, about 13 years before he was back on the big screen. He'd done a lot of television in there. Uh, but then this movie comes up and he has a second career uh, in the, the golden years. Yeah, popping up in the Cocoon movies and just, I mean, he became one of those those uh, older actors that uh, that people wanted to get into their films because it was, uh, you know, he it, he proved how great of an actor he was. We'll see the Duke brothers actually getting Coming to America as a nice little cameo. But I mean, he's, you know, I mean, I'm not saying they're all great movies, but he certainly was keeping busy after this, you know, after Cocoon and then Harry and the Hendersons and Oscar and, and you know, Karina Karina, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. He ended up doing a lot of things and just keeping busy for that last portion of his career, which I think is really fantastic because, I mean, Don Amici was just one of those great actors back in the day, you know. Truly. John Landis, um, when he was casting these two parts, he really wanted it to get uh, Ralph Bellamy and Ray Milland to be the two uh, to, the, to, to be the two Duke brothers. But they couldn't get Ray, Ray Milland to get insurance. I guess, uh, you know, he'd probably uh, taken a turn and was just having a harder time later in his life. So they uh, couldn't get any insurance on Ray Milland, um, who, you know, he ended up passing away a few years after this. Um, but, you know, I think Don Amici ended up really being a great, uh, a great person to fit the bill here. I did not know that Don Amici was uh, considered for the role of Don Vito Corleone in The Godfather before Brando. I feel like we should have mentioned that a few, uh, like last month. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's kind of an important thing to note. Right. Better late than never. Uh, no, there you go. Denholm <laughs> uh, Elliott, I already mentioned how surprising it is every time I look at Denholm Elliott's page, because I really imagine him as only being in this movie and the Indiana Jones movies, and it and that's the expanse of his career. That, dare I say, is unfair. Very busy man. Daniel Elliott is an actor of 161 credits uh, since the beginning of time, that being 1947, his first TV movie, Mary Rose, and uh, all, all the way up to, um, he, he was uh, in Noises Off in 1992. Oh, such a great one. And he died in 1992, October 6, 1992. He has my favorite moment in the whole film, which is so uh, funny because uh, it's just such a little thing. But it's just this underplayed moment when he's getting all riled up as they're putting this plan together and they're they're coming up with their plan to get back at the Duke brothers. And he just kind of comes up and he offers them eggnog. And all he says is <laughs> eggnog. But he says it like the look on his face, like he's just so into this and he's ready to like help these guys take the Duke brothers down. Oh, my goodness. I just uh, I just could not stop laughing. Just a great moment for me. <laughs> Truly, he's you know he he really nails that quintessential uh, English butler 
uh, gestalt, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. he really does. I feel so bad for him after the party when Eddie Murphy, There's a, it's a wonderful pivot when he brings all of his friends from this bar and many people he doesn't know back to his house to have his first party the first night in his new house after it has been given to him. And there is Denim Elliott uh, as Coleman, you know, hosting people and moving in and out. And he's got such the, the sort of staid British panache. You know, he's trying to be a host and help people but you know he hates it and at the end there is of this sequence there's this wonderful exchange between the two of them where he says you know why don't you get to bed you've got a big day tomorrow i'll tidy up and eddie murphy uh you know the look on his face is is one that is you can tell is just just nailed by that that sort of flabbergasting sense of warmth that is is given to him by Elliot's Coleman. I think it is such a wonderful bit for those two characters on on screen together, and great to see him on screen. Yeah, his brother. He said uh, he patterned a lot after his brother um, as far as the way he performed. Who he said was a gentleman's gentleman. And Jamie Lee Curtis plays Ophelia. She oh, is Jamie the, Lee. Uh, yeah. Oh. There she was. Boy, talk about a, a woman who doesn't age. Oh, no kidding. No she was kidding. 24 at the time they filmed this movie. She she hasn't changed a bit. This, I'm really glad that John Landis cast her. She was stuck in kind of the Scream Queen status because of Halloween. And that's where she had been. But he really wanted her to be this. And, and he had to fight the studio to cast her in this film. And it worked so well. And I'm so glad because now we've got, you know, the, the funny side of Jamie Lee Curtis. We've got a fish called Wanda and Fierce Creatures and just all the stuff that came out of that. So it makes me so happy that she ended up in this film. Me too. I think she's just terrific. And uh, I can't believe you didn't mention True Lies. That's one of my favorite roles that she does. <laughs> Well, there's a reason I didn't mention that one. <laughs> I am shocked and awed. Uh, she's, you know, there, there's a, a, a couple of uh, a couple of interesting bits of improv, and the one that the scene that is that strikes me has always struck me as particularly odd is the sequence on the train where she's wearing lederhosen and she has the Swedish accent, and it's a bit of confusion on the train where they're talking about you know how how the accent doesn't match the clothes, and uh, it turns out that was a bit of improv, and they they this is not a film that was known for a lot of improv, and most of the improv. Um, you know, these these funny actors were doing improv, didn't make it into the film, but some did. Uh, and in this case, uh, it was that she actually could not do an Austrian uh, accent. All she Every time she spoke, it was uh, Swedish. And so they left that bit in the film, which explains a lot. It's it's It doesn't land particularly funny for me uh, in that sequence. It, at least it didn't until now I know why. That and then the blackface. <laughs> yeah. Which is a little rough also that's, and a little hard a little to believe, rough. but yeah. yeah, but rough. the rest of it, uh, yeah, actually this, that whole sequence, I end up, uh, you know, getting, uh, I struggle with quite a bit, that whole sequence all the way through the grill and everything. It's like, yeah, it's not the best, but yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Just another interesting tidbit about Jamie Lee Curtis is her sister Kelly played one of the, the club girls that is in kind of uh, Lewis's group. And uh, Christopher Guest's brother, Nicholas, was also in that group, uh, which leads me to uh, wonder if this film might be where Jamie Lee ended up meeting Christopher Guest and uh, uh, leading them onto their uh, marriage. I think they only got married like the, the following year. So, I mean, it had to be right around this time that they met. 
I love it when we talk romance on this show. Highly speculative romance. <laughs> Isn't it fun? Isn't it fun? <laughs> uh, Jamie Lee did actually go on to work with Dan Aykroyd. It sounds like they had a great working uh, working time together. Um, they were in My Girl, My Girl 2, and Christmas with the Cranks. Um, so another little dose of Christmas joy for everybody. <laughs> Paul Gleason shows up as Clarence Beeks, the, uh, the uh, uh, corporate espionage specialist and security expert. Yeah, he was based on G. Gordon Liddy. And what I think is funny is that John Landis, I don't, I don't know what he was thinking or why he would have wanted to try this, but he actually offered the part to G. Gordon Liddy originally, <laughs> uh, which is such a strange thing to do because I can't imagine uh, he's much of an actor. But he said he wouldn't do it because he didn't want to be buggered by a gorilla, as he, <laughs> as he put it. So G. Gordon Liddy, you say he doesn't strike you as much of an actor, and yet on IMDb he's got 18 credits. Wow. He was in he was in Airwolf, dare I say, hit Jan Michael Vincent vehicle Airwolf <laughs> as Barkley Case uh in, in an episode there in 1986. So, I'm I'm not saying that maybe this film uh Trading Places wasn't uh, uh you know, uh was the catalyst for G Gordon Liddy's career in entertainment, but I am saying that uh you know, it's possible There's more performance acumen uh, than perhaps I had uh, suspected. Andy, Miami Vice, MacGyver, (laughs) right? Uh, Seriously, Street Asylum in 1990, the film Adventures in Spying in 1992. Perry Mason, Andy. He was was in all 46 episodes of 18 Wheels of Justice. (laughs) He was. Ah, yes. Yeah, he was. Jacob Calder. All right. All right, G. Gordon, I can't take that away from you. You certainly can't. Rules of engagement, Andy. Rules of engagement with Tommy Lee and Sam Jackson and G. Gordon Liddy. Oh, dear. (laughs) Just saying. Paul Gleason. Great to see him. Everybody remembers him as the principal in Breakfast Club. I'm sure everybody remembers him there. <laughs> uh, there is a long list of bit parts uh, in this film, as uh, we know that Landis is prone to do. Do you want to just run down the list? Oh, uh, yeah. James Belushi pops up in here. Um, uh, Frank Oz pops up. What's funny about Frank Oz is he and, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but there seems like an interesting uh, John Landis connection with the Muppets in that whole world. Because Frank Oz, who was uh, part of the Muppets, um, he was in a number of Landis films, Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Spies Like Us, Innocent Blood, and this. He was also in Blues Brothers 2000, the sequel. Um, and then if he does not appear in a Landis film, his name is often spoken in the background. So, for example, in the uh, airport scenes in Into the Night and in Coming to America, we're going to have to listen for this. There are announcements on the PA system for Mr. Frank Osnowitz. So we'll have to <laughs> That's awesome. really listen for that. But speaking of the Muppets, Richard Hunt um, plays Wilson uh, working for the Duke Brothers. Um, he was a Muppet performer and he was also the voice of Scooter and Statler. Um, so he shows up toward the end of the film here. Bo Diddley, a little uh, ties to the Blues Brothers, pops up as a pawnbroker. Um, Tom Davis and Al Franken are uh, from SNL, are luggage handlers. Robert Earl Jones, uh, from we talked about in The Sting, he pops up as the attendant here. Giancarlo Esposito is in the film. And, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy's buddy Clint Smith pops up as Do-Rag Lenny. He's going to be in Coming to America. And, uh, and then the last one we were going to talk about was Don McLeod. As the gorilla. Don McLeod has a wonderful IMDb page. 
Not because he plays the obvious, you know, he's obviously a guy in a suit gorilla in Trading Places, but because he plays gorillas a lot. He's like the gorilla man. You need a guy to be a gorilla? <laughs> Talk to Don McLeod. Is this your guy? Did we count how many uh, noted gorillas he plays from Trading Places? Well, this was not his first gorilla, right? No, he was, you're right. Uh, he was in. He was the gorilla uh, in the Man with Two Brains. He right. was also same year. Doctor yeah. Doctor Schlermy Beckerman. And uh, and then he goes on. He was in uh, the Tarvan, Tarzan in Manhattan TV movie. He was in the Tarzan: The Epic Adventures TV series. Uh, he was uh, on the Gorilla Team in Born to Be Wild. He was. Uh, I don't know if Gorgo uh, is a gorilla in the new Adams Family TV series. But it does he was, sound uh, like a sound like sounds, a gorilla. Sounds like a gorilla. He was a gorilla on Sheena, the TV series. He was the gorilla double on a short How to Eat Bacon. This is a guy who <laughs> really seems to have <laughs> tapped into something. You know, it, we, you're on set, and yet the director says, "We need somebody to be a gorilla." You're the guy who says, hey, "I could do that," and suddenly <laughs> you're always the guy who can be the gorilla. He's Andy Circus pre Andy Circus. <laughs> He's Andy Circus, <laughs> but in a suit. That's exactly who Don McLeod is. Uh, oh, that's so funny. Do, do we have any notes on getting it made uh, that we want to talk about in particular? Uh, not too much. Uh, Robert Painter was the cinematographer. Um, I know you had some thoughts on that one. Just that we've talked about him before, obviously. He did uh, American Werewolf London. He did five total films with Landis, including the thriller video uh, with uh, for Michael Jackson. And, and I, I just thought he did a nice job in this film. Otherwise, it, the film could have been a made-for-TV thing. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward proposition. And I, I didn't see anything that really jumped out at me in terms of camera placement or whatever, except for when you get these really striking sort of pose shots that, you know, I thought he captured pretty well, particularly around um, the the spy, right, the the in, the espionage, uh, the way he captured uh, Paul Gleason as Clarence Beeks. We have a lot of great silhouettes on the train that ends up feeling much more like a spy movie there. Um, uh, you know, I think his camera placement around the, the, the club uh, where we have Beeks walking across this giant room. It was an interesting choice having such a high angle in some of those rooms as he's trying to out the the internal uh, thief in the club. Um, and and so I think there were some some choices around that character in particular that that were very striking to me and and defined segments uh, for the film um, uniquely in, in a way that the rest of the film doesn't necessarily carry. So I you know I I think it's a it makes for an interesting visual voice. I I liked it. Well, and I think that's kind of what a, a cinematographer, you know, is going to do when they're given a, you know, a, a fun script. I mean, a comedy script certainly banks on the comedy to drive it. But I think that they're still going to work to find something to do, some way to kind of still tie all of that together and do something with the visuals. So it's great to see that he is kind of doing some, putting some of that interesting stuff in here. I agree. Deborah Nadulman, uh, John Landis's wife, of course, uh, does the costumes here. I think she, uh, you know, she ended up designing all of the suits and then uh, had a had a, a tailor in New York actually uh, construct them all but I think everything looks great she kept everything very um, just kind of bleak and and gray and everything except for two that really were kind of the highlight costumes that she wanted to have stand out one of course was uh, Billy Ray Valentine when we first meet him he's got that that red hoodie kind of under him under his outfit to kind of help frame him and single him out as hey he's a guy we're going to be paying attention to and beaks the uh, the and one of the bad guys of the film 
always had just the worst suits imaginable. He just looked so terrible in those really tacky plaid suits. Yeah. So I, I love that she actually really put some care into making those two characters really stand out. Uh, we got to shout out the music, Elmer Bernstein. Uh, fantastic score. You know, Bernstein, uh, this was that period when he had kind of uh, tapped into, uh, or I should say, uh, John Landis had tapped into working with him. He had started this this second uh, uh, direction in his career doing some really fun comedy stuff. And I really enjoy that um, that Landis decided to start tapping him, tapping into him with, I think the Blues Brothers was the first time that they did anything together. And then he just went on to do a number of his films, and we've talked about them. Um, but I just love the stuff that they do. And I love that Bernstein actually kind of blended some of the score with some of the Mozart and kind of really had that feel. And, you know, I mean, right away, the film kicks off with uh, The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, which I didn't know this, but I guess it's a composition that was originally banned in Vienna because it was mocked the upper class. So obviously the the team decided, uh, you know, hey, let's tie the music into kind of what we're talking about here in the film here. And I love that. And I love how how Bernstein really gave that to the score here as well. Like sometimes it's a point where I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm actually listening to Mozart or Bernstein anymore. Oh, I absolutely agree. I, I thought that was really, uh, it, really smart, first of all, scoring. And, and second, being able to use the music and the legacy of the music as a way to help push the narrative forward. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's practically not many people know this, but, but uh, Marriage of Figaro was the trading places of Vienna. I'm making that up, of course. I don't actually. Know <laughs> well, it sounded um, good. I believe you. I was like, wow. I know. You just so you went stark silence. I realized I, I need to open that up a little bit. Andy doesn't know I'm full of it. <laughs> the, I really loved the, uh, uh, the, these bits of musical mashup, right, where you have the score and it leads into the opening of the film as Lewis is whistling. He's actually whistling a, a song, a piece from Figaro, in which Figaro commits to, you know, upending the machinery and and actually going against the upper class, right, in that in that bit. And it, it ends up being foreshadowing for the rest of the film. And and uh, I, I, I did not know that. I've never studied Marriage of Figaro uh, all that closely, apart from just knowing, uh, you know, some of the themes. And so I, I thought that was a that was a fantastic note. It makes me want to go learn a little bit more about that um, that particular piece. And it makes me want to pull the score out and listen to it because yeah. I think that there's got to be a lot of uh, work that Bernstein did to really kind of blend everything together. How'd this do in awards season? Well, speaking of Bernstein, uh, he did get the only Oscar nomination for it. The category is Best Music, Original Song Score, and Its Adaptation, or Best Adaptation Score, which sounds like a crazy, like, we have too many of these that have been made, so we've got to come up with a whole new category sort of categories. You know, it's like, really? That's that's a category? <laughs> I can't wait to go to his Best Music, Original Song Score, and Its Adaptation, or Best Adaptation Score party after the event. <laughs> right. Uh, but unfortunately, Bernstein lost. Um, he lost to Yentl. It did get a couple Golden Globe nominations. Um, Best uh, Picture, which also lost to Yentl. Or Best Picture, Comedy, or Musical, I need to specify, lost to Yentl. And then Eddie Murphy got uh, Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. Um, but he lost to Michael Caine in Educating Rita. Um, then, of course, over at the BAFTAs, it did win Best Supporting Actor for Denim Elliott and Best Supporting Actress for Jamie Lee Curtis. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but lost to the King of Comedy. Um, Eddie Murphy did win an Image Award, though. So uh, as a great start to his career in comedy, um, you know, he did at least get some recognition for it. Now, we're doing this as a New Year's movie 
as we're our happy new year movie and obviously kicking off our Eddie Murphy theme, but not the rest of the world does not see it as a new year movie. Well, it's funny because it really bridges Christmas and New Year. So I guess you can argue it's kind of it fits in for both. So you can have it as a Christmas movie. You can have it as a New Year's movie. We, it works fine for us. But yeah, no, Italy, I guess it's actually become a Christmas classic in, in Italian television since uh, Christmas Eve 1997. They have been broadcasting it every year. Who knew? This is akin to Die Hard and its growing popularity as the as, uh, you know, an authentic Christmas classic. I know, I've isn't heard, that funny? I've heard, I've heard more people talk about Die Hard as the, their favorite Christmas movie this year than I have ever heard. That's so funny. We watched it. It's on our list. Oh, of course. us. Uh, me too. I should say not us. It is a me. I'm alone in the dark <laughs> watching Die Hard after everybody oh. has gone to sleep. No. Our, uh, yeah. Uh, anyhow, uh, how did it do in the box office? Well, John Landis's comedy cost $15 million to make, which is just over $36 million in today's dollars. Movie opened June 10th, 1983, opposite James Bond's Octopussy, and it opened third behind Octopussy and Return of the Jedi, still dominating the box office. The movie ended up making about $90.5 million, or just under 219 in today's dollars. It ended up being the fourth highest grossing film of 1983 behind Flashdance, Terms of Endearment, and Return of the Jedi, and the second highest grossing R-rated film of 83 behind Flashdance. All in all, a pretty solid return on the investment giving them an adjusted profit per finished minute of about one and a half million. Not bad. Pretty good, I'd say. I'd say that too. Let's, uh, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see our list. Uh, once again, just scroll up there. I've put the link straight to this movie in Flickchart so you can add it to your list right now. Tap on the link and let's get started. First up, we have Trading Places or The Road Warrior, Mad Max 2. It's hmm. a tough, tough one to start this with. Is, yeah, I hate starting off as a hate crime there. I, I'm torn. I actually, before I rewatched it, I might have said The Road Warrior. Now that I've rewatched it, I actually think I might go with Trading Places. Yeah, I think I will too. Putting in the top half. Yeah, there you go. Great way to start us off, Eddie Murphy. Trading Places or Scarlet Street? Oh, little hmm. Fritz Lang. I'm going to go Trading Places. I think I am too. Trading Places or Aliens? Aliens. Oh, here it is. Yes, aliens. Trading places are the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, good, the bad, and the ugly. Trading places or the thing. Definitely the thing for me. Yeah, the thing. Trading places or Seabiscuit. Oh, trading places. I'm going with Seabiscuit. Oh, absolutely uh, trading places. That's fine. Well, we're we're going to the mat then. All right, let's do it. Let's do (laughs) it. All right. Ready? Ready? One, two, three, paper. Somebody's got to win, Andy. Somebody's got to lose. That's right. That's right. Trading Places or The Social Network. Haven't seen that pop up in quite a while. Wow. I'm going to have to go with The Social Network. I think on the strength of the script alone, um, I just am generally a fan of Sorkin and the way he writes dialogue. I, I agree with you. I would actually go with Trading Places. But I think I'm going to give you social network because I'm pretty light on this decision here. Okay. All right. Trading places are Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Absolutely. All right. Trading places are some Kurosawa, Seven Samurai. Oh, this is another tough pairing. It is a really tough pairing. I'm on an island. I've got a TV and these two movies. 
I think just because of where I am right now and having I, I still have some of the the thrill of just seeing this movie again after so long. I, I I've seen Seven Samurai kind of a bunch recently. I'd probably watch this one. Although if you're on an island, Seven Samurai does kill the time a little more. <laughs> yeah, boy, it sure does. <laughs> Practical purposes alone. All right. <laughs> are you are you leaning samurai? Is that what I hear? You know, this is a really tough one. I'm actually leaning samurai, but I'm also pretty light on this one. And I could easily go to Trading Places because it's a very uh, light and fun film to watch. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm leaning Trading Places, but I think it's on the merits. I, I think I'm going to have to have better angels step in. All right, then let's let's do Seven Samurai then. Of Seven Samurai, I think that's only fair. <laughs> All right, Seven Samurai is going to take it then. Trading Places is 71 on the flick chart. 71 well, out of 281. Right. So that's a, that's a pretty solid uh, start for our Eddie Murphy series. That's about right. So it's between Seven Samurai and what? It's actually uh, between Fargo and Scarlet Street. Fargo, it's, oh, you know, right. sometimes the flick chart is one of those things where it didn't quite get ranked against everything. But uh, it's, it's between Fargo and Scarlet Street. Okay. All right. Well, that feels like a pretty good placement. I like that. What does this do for your letterbox ranking? I feel like I would say three and a half, but I'm feeling like it needs a half star of love. <laughs> so <laughs> so it actually might go up to four stars for me. I, I will join you for uh, with four stars, Andy. I think it deserves that half star of Andy Love. Excellent. Well, there we have it. It's a four star film. Uh, and you mentioned that we we're kicking this off uh, our Eddie Murphy in the 80s series. Uh, where do we go next week? We're just jumping a year to uh, Eddie Murphy's next big thing with Beverly Hills Cop, which is uh, just a really fun film and very much looking forward to it. And really, I shouldn't say his next thing. I mean, he actually was in uh, Best Defense in between these two. And uh, the less spoken of that, probably the better. (laughs) Well, have you seen Best Defense? Do you remember? With Dudley Moore? (laughs) Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, it was it was not a good uh, not a good movie, uh, but he was wasn't he like a tank driver or something? Eddie Murphy. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, it's an odd film. It's a very odd film. Kate Capshaw. Oh, look at that, George Dunza. It could yeah, have been just... interesting. It's an interesting concept that just really did not work at all. Yeah, totally agree. <laughs> totally agree. But we do have Beverly Hills Cop, and that's that's one that's worth uh, worth talking about. Absolutely. So we'll be talking about that uh, next time, and then we're jumping four more years to uh, coming to America. Outstanding. All right. Well, between now and then, I got to go to bed. All right, buddy. Well, it was a stone groove, my man. Amazon giveth, Andy. Oh, as Amazon always doeth. I've got one uh, from uh, Linda, June 10th, 2016, just uh, just a little while ago, uh, who caught up with this movie and, and gives it a one star. She says, the language destroyed this for me. The premise might be amusing, but the nudity and F-bombs were awful. Could not watch much of it. Okay, so... Whatever you think of this as a review, it does give us the opportunity to talk about one final point, which neither of us mentioned, uh, which is Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, nudity. 
in the film. Yes, I, I thought you were going to mention the uh, the f bombs, but yes. <laughs> oh, I didn't have a problem with the, with the f bombs. Uh, only uh, Don Amici yeah. did, but uh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yes, Jamie um, Lee Curtis, right? It, it what it was it was weird. It I I don't know. I I sort of looked past it because it felt like such a weird thing. There was no real purpose for it. Um, I I didn't feel like she was selling it as a uh, the body is is just a thing, and we're gonna be um, we're gonna go ahead and exist with the fact that I'm actually naked under my clothes. Like it felt much more like, "Ooh, this is an '80s movie," and here's Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's sexy and taking her clothes off. I don't know. What, what did you think of it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it fits because I mean, she's a prostitute, and I guess in that sense, it didn't it, it fit the character. Uh, you know, it just it seemed to be for me is like, well, it's just part of the story. It, it fit her character. It kind of fit in the movie. Um, I guess I didn't really think much of it, but I mean, I can see people getting upset with it. But eh. well, I don't know about it. If upset is the thing to be about it, it exists. It's there. I mean, it's fine. I just didn't get it. I didn't feel like it was necessarily appropriate for the character. And I believe me, I'm all about the nudity. I'm totally fine with nudity. It just seems like it seemed weirdly out of place. So I just kind of moved on. What I think is a little strange and made me actually feel a little uncomfortable is listening to um, some, uh, some modern reflections of the cast talking about the movie and yeah. having the the modern Dan Aykroyd going on and on about how perfect a rack that Jamie Lee Curtis has. Oh, like, this God. Is, seems a little, a little out of taste, but uh, oh, I don't know. Geez. Maybe it's just, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. What's yours? Mine is a one star by Miss Product Commentator. Yes, that's right. Why no outtakes or bonus stuff? And this is the strangest reason to give a movie a one star. I really don't get it. But here it is. Why can't anyone bother to include bloopers, screw-ups, and the like in with such a great movie? Come on! I would pay more for a DVD if they did. (laughs) Even better is that six people found that helpful. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So strange. Oh, well, good. Good to know. I'm not going to take bother, bother with this one. That movie was sure stupid then. <laughs> one star. <sighs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.